Welcome back to the Poor Pearls Almanac. This is Andy, and today we're talking with Dr. Thomas Molnar from the renowned hazelnut breeding program at Rutgers University. Founded in 1996, the Rutgers breeding program is responsible for many of the recent cultivars that have found their way into the public, including Monmouth and Somerset. We chat about the work they're doing, what the future holds for the humble hazelnut, and we chat a bit about the dogwood project he also oversees. For more information, as always, check out the links in the show notes. And if you're interested in learning more about hazelnuts, check out the episode we released just last week. And now let's get on to the interview. Tom, thanks so much for coming on. Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you ended up working with hazelnuts. Oh, well, first of all, I, I appreciate the interest and the, the time today. Actually, hazelnuts it goes back to 1996. I was one of those lucky people who kind of fell in the right place at the right time with the right interests. Um, when I was a freshman at Rutgers, I met a professor. I knew I wanted to get into plant breeding, and I met a professor who had already had a full career in breeding turf grasses uh, for like sports turfs and, and improved lawns. And he was nearing retirement, and he got inspired or followed an earlier passion to start a new project on breeding temperate nut trees. So it wasn't just hazelnuts, it was hazelnuts and wal different species of walnuts, uh, almonds, even ginkgos, we had pistachios, uh, basically everything that J. Russell Smith talked about in his tree crops uh, book. And I met Dr. Funk when I was a freshman and I was just, just really blown away by the ideas of tree crops as a part of a sustainable agriculture. And he was starting the project in 1996 and I started working hourly for him and basically worked alongside a really well-practiced and successful plant breeder, but to build a new program on a different crop species, uh, you know, grasses versus trees, and uh, allowed me to learn next to a master and was fortunate enough to carry that into graduate school and then fortunate enough to get hired as a, as a professor to continue breeding trees at Rutgers, you know, despite not having a nut tree industry in the Eastern United States. Uh, you know, it's a, a, a twists and turns in there, but, I, you know, I was really lucky to get inspired young. And I mean, that's over 25 years ago, you know, been working on, on nut trees and hazelnuts really floated up to the top as you know, sort of logistically the one that we could make the biggest contributions and work with the, the limited land and uh, funds that we had. I, I could see that. I mean, with hazelnuts, you can probably get your first crop within five years. And if you were to do any other nut, you're looking much, much longer and at a much larger landscape size. I mean, we, we had pecans, we had hickories, and it was like 12, 13, 14 years in, and they are just starting to produce nuts. It's not just that first year of nuts. You really have to evaluate these plants to see their value over time. So it was just, there was no way that I could have a career breeding something like northern pecans without an industry support. But hazelnuts, within four or five years, we get nuts. Uh, we have a disease problem, which became like a targeted research area where we could make improvements um, and it it fit and they're smaller. <laughs> so the acreage is, is is less. So yeah, jumped into hazelnuts. Basically, when when my mentor, when he, Dr. Funk was his name, when he retired a couple of years after that, I basically decided it's all hazelnuts. We're going all in. No more pecans, <laughs> no more hickories, uh, no more walnuts. Yeah, I, I get that. The thing that's really interesting about hazelnuts in particular as a, a crop is that it's probably, historically speaking for humans, it consumes the largest portion of our diets across the globe has been 
hazelnuts. And they're really not a part of our diet anymore, which is just, when you think about it, just like wild that the thing that literally kept humans alive for probably a hundred thousand years, we're just like, no, we don't, what's a hazelnut? What does it taste like? It's in chocolate, right? It's, I mean, that the reason we started the tree nut project was because of the new, Dr. Funk was really getting into the health literature and this was in the, the mid 1990s. Like he was reading the, the early literature that said, if you eat tree nuts, you'll live longer. You'll have a reduced uh, health problems from cancers to, you know, blood pressure and all these great things. So he started eating a lot of tree nuts and then decided we need to make some contributions here. And um, just in- incredibly nutritious. I mean, hazelnuts are uh, just really a wonderful food source. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm just going to be really oversimplify here. So you really have like two major hazelnut varieties. You have the Americans and the Europeans. And then you've got this Eastern Filbert blight. Could you talk a little bit about the blight, like where it came from, why it's a big deal? Sure. So th- there are some miscon- misconceptions on the blight sometimes because it's easy to confuse it with chestnut blight and how chestnut blight came to the United States and basically wiped out chestnuts. Where here, Eastern filbert blight is a fungal pathogen that's been in North America for as long as you know hazelnuts have been here. So it's found associated with our Native American hazelnut, Coralus americana. The native hazelnut's highly tolerant or even you could say resistant to it, although it does harbor it. But our native hazelnut has a very tiny nut with a thick shell. It's edible. It can be productive. It tastes good, but it, it doesn't really compare to the size and quality of a European domesticated hazelnut cultivar. Uh, so that's typically what people are, they want to grow. They want to grow the larger, thinner-shelled European hazelnut. Uh, but unfortunately, the European hazelnut, having not evolved in the presence of the fungus that causes eastern filbert blight, is highly susceptible. So this has really been, even though there's parts of the eastern United States where European hazelnuts can grow climatically, if you try to grow them here, or in the past you've tried to grow them, and all of a sudden, or you know, within a couple of years or even 10 years, the fungus makes its way from American hazelnut to European hazelnut, and it kills the trees. It's it's one of those diseases that kill the trees, so it's, it's sort of a dead end. Now, I'm assuming that's similar to like a chestnut blight, where it kills it down and then it reshoots out, or does it actually totally 100% wipe it, it out? Well, the chestnut has the that ancient root system that's so has over time it'll those chestnut shoots get weaker and weaker and they do die too um i think if it was a really well-established european hazelnut it would probably keep coming back for decades but most of the time we have smaller trees with weaker root systems and at least in new jersey here if it's a susceptible european hazelnut within five or six years they're typically they're dead or they'll send up a weak cane and it gets infected and it it, it dies off. Um, so sort of similar in that respect. Um, but then the flip, sort of a flip side, flip story, because here we're trying to grow a foreign plant with a native uh, disease. So we can't be too upset over it. It's not like it came and invaded and wiped out what we had. It's just, it's really it makes growing hazelnuts challenging. Now, are you doing any work with American hazelnuts and trying to breed them to be larger instead of going the other way? We, so our breeding program has multiple avenues, partly because, you know, looking to the future, we don't know, we don't really know what's going to work best with all the, the challenges coming. So we do have a whole side of the program, which, which is 
working with American hazelnut as sources of disease resistance and also adaptation to, say, colder climates, more stressful climates. Um, so we are actively crossing the American hazelnut with the European. We have now we're multiple generations in breeding of trying to basically keep some of those adaptation traits of the American, keep the disease resistance, but then get higher yields of bigger nuts with thinner shells and better quality that, you know, Americans will see those kernels and say, oh, it's a hazelnut. They won't say, what's this, <laughs> you know, this little tiny, you know, pea that goes in my granola or something. Right. Yeah. I, I, it reminds me so much of like what we have been doing with the American chestnut in terms of breeding. You know, you've got the, it's one thirty second Chinese now, some of the varieties that they've created, they're technically Chinese, but they have a lot of resistance. Is that kind of the direction we're going with this? We're going with it very similar, but even with the chestnut, they're finding it's more complicated. When you start looking at having durable resistance, there's many genes involved. Um, so we can't, in the hazelnut, we can't do a simple back cross breeding program where we just reduce it and we keep crossing it back to European. So we're having to do a little more complicated breeding scheme. But we have the beautiful thing with hazelnut is though, versus chestnut, we're not trying to reforest. We're trying to plant orchards of clones, essentially. So if we get that really good plant, we're not as concerned with, well, how does it transmit those traits to the next generation? We're, we're going to graft it or layer it. And in your orchard, you're going to get that clone with all those good traits. We'll still use it in breeding, but we can. it's a shorter term, a little bit easier goal than, uh, you know, I work with or discuss this with some of the American chestnut breeders, and it's, it's a long-term complicated process to think about reforestation and stability under that context versus, well, if I found a really good hazelnut out of, you know, 10, one out of 10,000 is awesome. We can clonally propagate it. And that's what the farmers will grow alongside other, I'm not advocating one cultivar is all we want to grow, <laughs> but um, you know, it's, it's a little easier breeding. You know, you, you've mentioned now that this idea of like one out of 10,000, like how big of a scale are you guys growing these at? The breeding program has been going on at least since, you know, on a significant scale since the year 2000. And we typically plant about 5,000 to 10,000, depending on the year, seedlings every year from controlled crosses. Uh, so we cycle through many, many thousands in the breeding program. And each year we're planting more. But then at the same time, every year something new is coming into bearing we're selecting plants moving into clonal yield trials. So we're kind of moving through this whole systematic process. We have over 30 acres in seedlings of hazelnuts and probably about five acres in what we call like clonal yield trials. So it's a, it's a pretty significant program, you know, as we're trying to find those, I'll say elite hazelnut selections, but then also maintain diversity we're keeping track of different sources of disease resistance. We have the American breeding lines. We have the pure Europeans. There's a lot of different components. Uh, so that takes a lot of land and a lot of resources to manage. Yeah, I, I got to imagine you must have like an actual team of farmers or it's some you know, arborists or something that are managing this because at that scale, that's some work. We do. We have a really great team. There's probably, if you include like the farm crews that really help manage everything, there's probably five or six of us that are dedicated to the project, the different aspects of it to, to keep it, keep it running, and uh, you know allow me to 
do some of the other sides of it. Uh, you know, there's a lot of logistical work, just maintaining a breeding program and all the trees we grow in the greenhouse. And um, but we're also trying to do publishable research and, and learn new things at the same time. So it's sometimes it's overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, I was looking on on ResearchGate uh, when I was looking up some of your papers, and it was just like there'd be a handful of papers, and it was like new cultivar, new cultivar, new cultivar, like all these different things that you guys are working on. So, like, wh- with that in mind, how like what does a successful year look like in terms of like, all right, you've got these thousands of plants. Like, what are you like? If we get this many varieties that do, blah blah blah, this is a good year. Well, that's a really good question. It's almost hard to answer because of the long timelines. I've been doing this for twenty five years, but we didn't release our first cultivars until two years ago. Uh, so it's taken such a long time, you know, to go through the selection and evaluation process to the propagation of those to where now you can actually go buy from a nursery or a propagator of some Rutgers hazelnuts. Uh, What we hope for, though, is to successfully raise our five to six or 7,000 seedlings, have enough field space to get them planted each year, um, and then go through and do successful yield evaluations. It's basically like a sliding. We have about eight or 10 major tasks that have to get done in a year. And, you know, Honestly, if we get six out of 10, we're, we're doing well. If we can get all 10, then, uh, you know, the stars were aligned. But we're, you know, cultivar releases are, it's, it's complicated because um, not only do they have to be better than what's available, they have to propagate well. And you, even though, like, for, for example, right now we have some really new, really exciting new potential cultivars. But until you can start ramping up numbers... You don't really even want to talk about them because people can't get them and it's a tree. It might take three years. It, it might be three or four years to get numbers. So it's, um, you know, we're learning as we go, I should say, because, you know, 20 years has just taught me some things and made me question a lot of other things. So and More questions than answers. So are there, not to put you on the spot, but are there any cultivars that you're particularly uh, excited about that are coming out? Well, just recently, we have numbers of trees available of several of our new varieties. Um, and one that's really looking promising, its name is Raritan, uh, which is after the, Rutgers sits on the Raritan River here in New Jersey, so the name comes from, from Rutgers. Um, and that one's propagating really well. Growers are putting in you know, multiple acre plantings of Raritan, uh, but hazelnuts also need pollinizers. So there's, you know, that's a little bit of the challenge of what, what do you plant with your Raritans. Um, we released one in collaboration with the Hybrid Hazelnut Consortium, which is Oregon State, University of Nebraska, the Arbor Day Foundation, University of Missouri. Um, we named it The Beast for kind of a funny, <laughs> it's a funny side story there. But that's a really great pollinizer for Raritan. Um, so we're, we're excited that farmers are now planting or homeowners, growers, all, all different types of people that like plants are planting Raritan and The Beast. And then just this year, probably for the, it's really for the first time, Two of our other cultivars will be available, named Somerset and Hunterdon. And I we selected these plants. Like Somerset comes from seed we germinated in the year 2000. It's 23 years, and this will be the first year, 2023, uh, when you can actually get it from suppliers. That's awesome. And then they're not going to produce nuts for four, five, or six years. You know, so it's all sort of it's sorting out. Uh, but the trees are going in the ground. We've probably had. At least 50 acres of trees get planted this in 2022, and maybe close to 50 in 2021. 
you know, throughout the Northeast. Um, so it's, it's unfolding, but we don't have all the answers just yet. Yeah, it, it'll be an inter intergenerational thing to see how these things play out, I think. It, it's really, it's going to, because, you know, you select a plant in one region, or we select multiple plants, and we tried to release a diverse, sort of a diverse population or a diverse set of clones, and you, you just don't know which one's going to perform best where, how far can you push it north, you know, what what are the cultural needs you need for it to perform well, uh, so it's 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 all sort of unfolding as we speak. Yeah. One of the things, like I, I'm a big tree crops person as well. One of the things that I struggle with or, or I've been thinking about is how do, if you breed this like incredible hazelnut tree, how does that become a part of the marketplace? Do you, do you see a place for increased hazelnut production where people buy it and want to eat it? Well, part of what we've been doing over the past probably four or five years is we've been harvesting uh, our extras, uh, you know, a couple thousand pounds, maybe up to 4,000 pounds of nuts. And we've been shelling them and we've been distributing them and selling them to local chefs and bakeries and, and candy makers, uh, other kinds of restaurants all throughout this Northeast region and uh, especially New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania. And they absolutely love the quality and the flavor. So we've been able to sell everything like almost immediately. The demand is once once the people who make tasty products see how flavorful a fresh hazelnut is, especially when it's roasted. Uh, so I really think once once we get the word out a little bit more and it be, the crop becomes available, the market demand is going to just it's going to be there. Uh, just the, the product that they're being made with these fresh hazelnuts are so good and you you just can't replicate it uh, with something from turkey or uh, you know elsewhere that's awesome yeah i i truly hope that we get to see that at least in our lifetime because i you know you go to the grocery store and it's like oh i want to pick up some hazelnuts or, or really any nut any there's nut. really <laughs> there's really not a whole lot of options and if you want something, especially like local or native, like then you're, you're even making that search even harder and extremely expensive compared to any other protein at that price. And and you think about like one of the other alternatives is almonds from California, and that, you know there's, I love almonds; they taste great, but that's <laughs> that's very different than a locally produced nut crop, which we've been lacking yeah. in the Northeast. So I I think that. I mean, it's gonna. It's going to require expanding the market. If people don't eat a lot of hazelnuts, uh, but once they get an opportunity to see how flavorful they are and also recognize the nutritional value, one thing I should mention that what once people realize this, uh, you know, that the storage life, the shelf stability of hazelnuts in the shell, uh, you could leave them basically at room temperature for a year, and once you you can shell them and roast them, and they still taste great. They retain their flavor. So in terms of local markets and, and having being able to sell a crop basically all year and still have quality, it gets a lot of our farmers excited that do the farmer stands and the fresh market stands where, you know, all your tomatoes have to go, all your peaches have to go at once. Well, well here's hazelnuts and you can sell, you know, 50 pounds a week all year, essentially, if you if you handle them the right way. That's awesome. Now, have you guys started looking into other like additive type usages for hazelnuts, like thinking about breeding for oils or uh, anything, you know, something that you could utilize in like a livestock feed or anything like that? Well, early on, uh, we, we did do some studies on oil content to see if to look at the, what, what, what's the variation, like 
can you have 50, some have 50% oil, you know, some have even higher 65% getting close to 70% by weight oil. You know, we were even thinking, you know, there was, there was funding out there for biofuel research and we were, we were kind of looking at it as an oil crop. Um, and then, you know, I smartened up and realized the, you know, the culinary and food value is off the charts for this oil. We also recognize, though, the main limiting factor is yield and production, not the variation within the plants. It's more of like, well, this might have a lower oil content, but we can we can increase yields by you know 500 pounds per acre, and that offsets it. So we've really focused on high quality kernels because you can press them for oil, but the market's there for you know the attractive round kernels that when you roast them, the skin comes off and they're flavorful and they go into candies and into pastes. And so we we figured we'll focus on that because we have the genetic resources to get that. But we do have some growers that are looking into pressing them for oil. They're investing in the equipment um, because there's there's such a nice value-added component. I think especially if you imagine growing them organically, uh, locally, and then having a, like a local oil, culinary oil, that you can, that's going to go over quite, quite well, I think. So Yeah, I, I think so too. I mean, I oils are so expensive like good cooking oil and uh you know i i was just on tiktok today and i'm sorry i'm bringing up tiktok but uh somebody was talking about how there's like this old uh, woman in greece talking about how like the olive oil we're getting in the united states isn't like the same thing as what they have there and people are so distrustful of anything on that scale anymore because even if 99% of it is what it claims to be that 1% is just it makes everyone totally just like shut yeah. down and be like, I don't trust anything unless I can like talk to the guy who made it. In which case, like it does speak to like some deeper, like human condition kind of things where it's like, we value our community. We trust our community. We don't have that anymore. And we're starting to see the repercussions of like not being accountable to you know anybody because you did something 6,000 miles away. So I, I think that comes back to this idea of like wanting foods local. And with like hazelnut oil, that means we have to start thinking about different foods that make more sense where we live. And I I think for a lot of us, hazelnuts make a lot of sense, especially given like their historical context for all humans across the earth that have required or utilized this plant for tens of thousands of years. But of course, the, the challenge becomes, and we talked a little bit about it before we started recording, is that when we start talking about tree crops, in terms of like the infrastructure for agriculture, it's a totally different animal. Although I, I feel like hazelnuts is kind of a the sweet spot, though, because we do have a fair amount of crops already that are bush that we, we harvest from versus tree crops. So I, I, I'm curious if you've had any of those kinds of conversations with farmers about what it looks like to scale up something like hazelnut production. It, it is one of the topics of discussion. And it presents some significant challenges uh, and changes of mindset. And so if it is going to scale up, just the mindset of annual agriculture versus tree crop agriculture is, um, you know, for one, just that upfront investment that the offset and the, the land required, but also the time required really at this point in time limits who jumps into hazelnut production. You know, we're, we're seeing a really interesting group of people that get into hazelnuts at this point, you know, being on the front of, well, here are the new varieties and giving out some growing advice. And it tends to be be people who aren't always necessarily relying on their farm for a living. You know, they have other sources of income to offset that 
four or five or six years that's going to take to kind of get a return on your investment. But luckily, hazelnuts, like you said, are, uh, although the European hazelnuts, I would say, are more tree, but the hybrid hazelnuts are bush form, but they're highly mechanized. So you can harvest them without a lot of hand labor. So whether it's the tree type Europeans or it's the more bush type hybrid hazelnuts, uh, where we're where there's a number of people now looking into over the top harvesting like you do for blueberries or some of the other berries. The, the main thing is it's not vegetables, it's not peaches. Like this, this just takes a few people with the right machines to harvest. So when we have farmers come in and we demonstrate our harvesting equipment, and they realize that it's it's very different than peaches or apples. Uh, you know, we don't have as much pruning requirements. So you can really, it's mechanize this crop, which brings it into how do you grow corn and, and wheat and soybeans? It's all highly mechanized. So it, it kind of brings it in into perspective. Hey, we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that you can get a whole lot more information from poorproles.com. On our website, we have access to our supplemental reader for the podcast, which provides more depth and context, as well as thorough citations for all of the stuff we talk about in the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which updates you about limited releases, such as various nursery stock that we sometimes sell through the Poor Pearls website, as well as updates about new merch that we have. You can also support the show through that website, poorpearls.com, where you have access to our Patreon and our Substack to get early releases for articles and episodes. Now, if you enjoy the show and are just looking for even more audio content, go check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into the Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene and what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. You know, in New Jersey, where we are, land values are really high. The prices of land are high. You know, everything is 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 a little extra complicated, I think, in terms of, you know, the price of land and labor and inputs. But I think once we show some of it in action, you see the trees, you know, recognize you're not having to plant these every year. And in fact, you don't have to prune them every year once they're established, you know, minus sucker control if you're growing, you know, European hazelnuts. But you're going to get this valuable crop year after year. I can see a, a mindset. Like I'm getting c- contacted by traditional farmers or people in the traditional farming community, whether it's conventional or organic. I'm seeing more of that as their neighbors who moved from the city and bought a nice parcel of land and is now turning into hazelnuts. The conventional farmers are getting a little bit interested. At least it seems, you know, we're still, it's, it's happening slowly, but um, it's exciting to see a little bit more acceptance in that community too. That's awesome. And it's funny that you brought up blueberries because that was exactly what I was thinking about is seeing the machines come through on blueberry bushes and just like clearing them out. That's exactly what I had envisioned for like a hazelnut uh, production type system. I'm excited over us getting to that point. It it really changes equation in terms of how do you manage your orchard floor, even food safety, the nuts aren't dropping on the, on the soil. It it gives you a a lot of options. Um, It's, still being worked out though um, you know the, yeah. our best most productive hazelnuts can be 25 feet tall maybe that's a little too large but the hybrid hazelnuts are much smaller more compact but we haven't quite i would say identified just the right plant material yet so it's all it, i think over the next five to ten years it's all coming together uh, the engineers are working on the equipment i've seen some really great equipment in, in 
working uh, on hazelnuts. So if we can just get the right plants, the right equipment, figured out the timing and, you know, all the other components, this can be a really nice, sustainable crop. Yeah, absolutely. And how far north can these, these hybrids go? Well, I'm, if, if you look at the upper Midwest, uh, really cold parts of Wisconsin, Minnesota, uh, probably touching into zone three, but definitely zone four, cold hardiness growing zone. And they, they have, there's big plantings already established, but the problem is they're seedlings. So there's quite a bit of variation. So um, there's some challenges with that. But the plant material exists to do what we want to do. Like as a plant breeder of 20 plus years, I'm convinced that, you know, we can develop plants that grow in the cold region with higher yields and better quality kernels and all at the same time develop the right machines to harvest them appropriately and manage them the right way. It's exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I I always think about like, I keep bringing up that I feel like the hazelnut is like the perfect plant for humans, especially given climate change because of that quick turnaround. And if you can plant them that far north, they can establish themselves as regions that are right now perfect growing regions for, you know, monocrops. We start losing those, the, that, that border starts going further north. We've already invested and created what will replace those calories that we're basically going to functionally lose. And if you think about the the caloric value of something like hazelnut, that's a high percentage oil and very good protein and just a little bit of starch in there. It's it's just highly nutritious and the food calories per acre are, are quite substantial. I, I really feel like it's, for me, it's, it's exciting and it, it drives the work we do as I think now we have plant material that can do well in the sort of the mid-Atlantic region. We're getting to zone five. So like parts of New York state, upper Northern Pennsylvania, and then the upper Midwest, there's a couple of universities working there on hybrids and we're joining forces. Uh, you know, it's, it's coming to where we'll have these really productive plants for, you know, just think of the land they have there and the good soils and even the water resources. It's, it's, it holds a lot of promise for the future. Yeah. I, I, I hope so. So so I want to change gears just a little bit and talk about some of the stuff you've been doing with dogwoods. You told me you kind of inherited this project, but like I I like dogwoods for the simple fact that they're a native tree that we can use as an ornamental and I I don't think anyone knows that they're a native tree. Like in turn if you ask the average person like you know where's the dogwood from? I'm pretty sure they would say like Asia cuz it, it looks like it would be from that region. There's, there's two, there's actually two parts to that story um, because the project that I inherited, his name was Elwin Orton and really his claim to fame was he crossed our native dogwood with an Asian species. Oh, so of he, course. <laughs> what was happening is we had dogwood anthracnose that was at the time looking like it, it may wipe out the native dogwoods. It was really looking severe in the forest settings and even the landscapes. Um, so earlier on in his career, Although these two species bloom about a month apart, really challenging to cross them, but he worked at it and he was able to make these interspecific hybrids between the two, which ended up being anthracnose resistant, stem borer resistant, like more, you know, how hybrid plants can just be more robust than either yeah. parent. And so I inherited a program really based on interspecific hybrids or mixing the native uh, and Asian dogwoods. At the same time, we've been continuing to, to work on the, the native um, because, so it's kind of weird how plant pathogens and things change over time. So anthracnose, uh, although it hasn't fully disappeared, it, it petered out somehow. 
right? Something changed or something compensated or another thing we don't like a virus or another pathogen. No, I don't really, I never got a clear answer, but it didn't wipe out our native dogwoods. It just kind of went away a bit. At the same time, when that was going away, a new strain of powdery mildew came from Asia that just hammers our <laughs> native dogwood. And it, this is a landscape plant that's supposed to be beautiful. And now it gets these powdery mildew covered leaves and it weakens the plant. Then they get more stem borers and then the trees either die or branches die. Part of my program is just the native dogwood. And we've been focused on powdery mildew resistance. Um, and I've been lucky that we did find a source of resistance. And some of our colleagues at, at University of Tennessee also found resistance in the native. So we've been building improved populations and making some selections where we now have pretty good tolerance to powdery mildew and is selecting for, of course, like better tree form and better blooms. And you can have white or pink or red blooms. So we have this whole disease resistance breeding program in, in the native. And then we were continuing the, the hybrid dogwood program uh, because just they're also inherently resistant to powdery mildew and anthracnose and stem borers. It's kind of a, you know, when you're battling invading pathogens uh, from other regions, if you use their plant material, it tends to it tends to work out well. So, yeah. so I work in Kusa dogwood, which if you're a fan of native plants, you know that's like boo. You know you don't, <laughs> you know that it's not everyone's favorite um, because you you can kind of look at it like, you know, what's the ecological benefit? You know, beyond growing a tree, which has benefits, but it doesn't necessarily fit all of the the native birds and pollinizers and you know, the thing, the claims you can make there. But we, we have some really attractive landscape plants, which I think if you're going to, if someone's not going to plant a tree and they're just not going to, and if you can convince them to plant a, a tree <laughs> in their yard, it, it's, it's, uh, I feel like it's a, it's a positive. Yeah, especially if it's not invasive because those for some reason are still being sold. <laughs> yeah. So, well, that, it, it's amazing the power of invasive plants. <laughs> yeah. We struggle just removing the invasive vines and, and trees, uh, you know, out of our 30 acres of, you know, tree plots. Oh, I can imagine what you guys must deal with down there. I have a few friends that do a lot of restoration work in New Jersey and they just, they, <laughs> the it's invasives the are out of control. The woody vine type <laughs> plants. I mean, it's, it's amazing how, how much work it takes. To, if you don't stay on top of it, then it becomes an amazing amount of work to clean up trees that are covered in woody vines and it just happens yeah. like two years go by if you don't get to a plot of older trees and then they're just and then it's uh, of course like i'm blanking uh poison ivy is and you know something simple like that it's just like if you let things get out of hand someone has to clean it up and it's you know we we spend a lot of time and money on that yeah i know new jersey's got a lot of wetlands and like phragmites has just taken over that in itself is just a battle, like a full-time, you, you could take everyone that's on unemployment and have them just deal with frag and you would not put a dent in it. It's amazing. I, I you know, I just accept it as the landscape because like the turnpikes and going up towards New York city, it's just like, it's just frag It's, it's, it's so amazing how it just take it's, that's all you see. It's frightening, but yeah, yeah, we're a little off track, but, um, so for people that are listening and like, I know a lot of people listening are really into hazelnuts. Is there anything they can do as just like backyard people with some a couple, maybe a couple dozen hazelnut trees to contribute to something like this? Or if you weren't working in the field doing this every day, what would be the thing you would do because you care about this stuff? Right now, I think is an exciting time for people like hazelnuts because there's a lot of different cultivars 
and selections coming out, like not just from Rutgers, but from some of the nurseries like Grimo Nut Nursery or Z's Nutty Ridge. There's an assortment of cultivars. And I, what I what we don't know is where do they perform best? You know, from even a small garden plot of 10 trees, if someone is interested and they ordered a bunch of these different varieties that are coming out and put them in, into, into their landscape and then watch them and see which ones actually work well, when do they bloom, which ones overlap. I think there's a lot to gain. We didn't have this material in, in at least this number um, in the past. Uh, so it's kind of, it's fun and exciting to see where do they grow well. You know, we're trying to build better networks to connect people interested in hazelnuts so people can report back on what's doing well, where. Uh, you know, if you're going to invest in planting 10 acres of hazelnuts, you, you probably want to know, you don't want to jump, that's expensive. <laughs> yeah, People's you don't want to be out there on your own. <laughs> You know, if if we had a better understanding on on what does best where, but then also sharing education on on things like like eastern filbert blight. What I don't want is for people to just start growing random hazelnut seedlings all over the potential growing range, where where these seedlings are susceptible, and now you're creating an inoculum load that wouldn't have been there before, which is going to impact growing on a larger scale and durability resistance genes and you know sometimes i temper people get excited over doing backyard breeding well to do a good job breeding hazelnut you need to expose it to disease you need to know which ones are resistant or you're going to spend a lot of time find a favorite plant and then it when it gets exposed in the future it's going to die so you need that disease pressure but i also don't want to encourage 30 or 40 or 50 different hot spots all over the growing range where people are doing backyard breeding. I don't want to discourage it. It's people's free will. But at the same time, if you're trying to grow a commercial hazelnut orchard, and then there's tons of disease inoculum around in a, in a place that wouldn't normally have it, that adds pressure to disease resistance genes and presents challenges. So things are going to unfold as they do. And that's part of life. Um, but I try not to promote like, because if you grew seedlings from, say, Raritan or Somerset, for example, at least 50% of those seedlings are going to potentially be highly susceptible. And you might not know they are until you have a full, you know, several acres. And then all of a sudden, the disease is going to spread like wildfire. And then you're going to be shooting spores into the uh, atmosphere all over the place. And uh, yeah, put some strong selection pressure on everything. That's not the natural situation. If you grow American yeah. hazelnut, you don't have, you have some disease pressure, but, and we've been studying it for a while and it is highly tolerant. You get very few cankers, even if or no cankers. It's almost amazing to know that the fungus has been reproducing itself and living for so long. Because um, we, I should mention, we've been collecting American hazelnut over the native range, and we have a collection, probably close to two thousand individual bushes, from at least seventy or eighty different places around the native range. Maybe you know more than a dozen states represent us. We have this really amazing collection and. It's under really high disease pressure, and we've been tracking it for over 10 years. And it's amazing how resistant or tolerant these plants are in general and how diverse. And it's a really – we've been building a breeding germplasm pool, so you know, we've been selecting from it and using it. But I definitely advocate people growing native hazelnuts as part of their landscapes and, you know, for animal food. And it's, it's kind of an exciting, fun plant to demonstrate to people, maybe not on – commercial nut production side, but, you know, for your hedgerows and, uh, you know, in your landscapes, I think it's a beautiful uh, landscape shrub. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm a big fan of the American chess or the American hazelnut. It's so fast growing. It's it's wild to see that it's a, a nut bearing tree that can grow that quickly. So it's it's a cool little you know specimen and to have here. Some have really pretty fall color too. I have some yeah. in, in my own landscape at home, and you know it doesn't last long. It doesn't stick. The fall color isn't like you have weeks of it, but there'll be a you know ten days or two weeks of really brilliant like fiery red and yellow, uh, which, which is, is a lot of fun. Cause it's also a nut producing edible plant, you know, and it makes good ground cover or, you know, landscape cover. Yeah. So for folks that want to know what's going on with the work you guys are doing, do you guys have any social media or anything like that or a website just to like keep up with what you guys are doing or yourself? We, we don't have really any super active social media, but I do have a website and we do have a growing newsletter list. So we have a we have a new newsletter we put out probably two or three times a year now. If anyone's interested, they can email me. Um, you can find my Rutgers website, you know, Rutgers, Tom Molnar at Rutgers, you know, Google search. And um, if anyone's interested in being putting on, put on our newsletter list, I'd be happy to, you know, just they can email me and I'll put them on the list and, uh, you know, we'll send that out. We're still working on some of the uh, more efficient ways to share information, but I think we have almost 450, you know, hazelnut contacts on our list, growers, enthusiasts, uh, you know, the whole range. Um, and that's, that's growing weekly. Um, so if anyone's interested, we're, we're happy to, to share as much as we can, uh, you know, try to tell from our perspective what's going on and, you know, where to get plants and what plants we think will do well and which ones, uh, you know, may not. Awesome. Yeah, I I will definitely link that in the show notes so people can reach out and hopefully subscribe and double that uh, readership because uh, hazelnuts are awesome and I I'm very in support of any perennial crop that we can use to start offsetting some of the massive monocropping that we can that we're doing, especially one that's protein and oil producing and all of these benefits that hazels offer over so many other plants. Yeah, you know, I echoed the same same thoughts there. I'm I'm happy. I'm excited to be able to work on a crop that I, you know, I do feel it has potential for climate resilience compared to some of the other crops. Uh, you know, especially with careful breeding and a perspective on thinking about those challenges we're going to face in terms of probably. Well, the biggest challenge I see is the fluctuating climate, which is a challenge. You know, it's very very warm, then it's very cold, then it's very warm, then it's very cold. Um, so I think hazelnuts have an advantage or with the right breeding could have a, a real significant advantage over some other crops minus or in addition to the fact it's highly nutritious and those other aspects. Yeah, me too. I feel very strongly in the same way. Tom, this has been really interesting and I, I definitely appreciate your time. Any Anything else I didn't ask that you would uh, like to talk about quickly before we wrap up? Well, I think we, we've covered almost everything. I, I'm not sure if I mentioned about our hybrid hazelnut consortium, I, I do like to give a lot of credit to my colleagues. So it's, especially on the hybrid hazelnut front, it's not just us here at Rutgers. Uh, we've really benefited through working closely with Oregon State University, who's been breeding hazelnuts since the, like the 1960s, uh, but also considering the, the native hazelnut and its possibilities for breeding more widely adapted plants. So, you know, working with Oregon State for over 20 years, uh, and then the Arbor Day Foundation was really one of the drivers to pull together this consortium. Um, and they worked closely with the University of Nebraska, uh, which brought in different plant materials. And then now, more recently, the University of Missouri at the Agroforestry Center. Um, and 
the main main point of me rambling here is that now what we do is we make these selections and we can send those plants out to these different climatic zones. Um, we also work closely now with the Upper Midwest Hazelnut Group in the University of Minnesota and Wisconsin. So in, at Rutgers, I use all this diverse germplasm. I get a really good clone. I propagate it clonally and I send it to these different locations. And now we're studying like which plants actually perform. You know, the exciting thing is, can I find one, say, an individual plant that performs really well in Nebraska, Missouri, Minnesota, and New Jersey? And then I feel confident that, you know, we'll see what the, what, you know, the weather is going to throw at it, if it can handle those different zones. Um, so it's really, a lot of this is a big collaborative effort. So, you know, I, I've talked a lot about me and Rutgers, but it, you know, the progress we made is built on these collaborations and, you know, you know, trees that, you know, it's really a legacy project with multiple generations and years. And, you know, you build off of, you know, decades of, of other people's work if you're going to have success. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I appreciate the work you're doing. I know a lot of other people do, uh, even though it might be something that flies under the radar, you know, people doing hazelnut breeding, but uh, it's, it's important and it's going to be a, a huge part of our food system in the future. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really appreciate you, you know, reaching out and, and giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. Great. Thank you so much. Great.